Hello, this is Father John Arnold, and welcome back to Oral Valley Catholic. You know, the Latin Mass and the controversy surrounding Pope Francis's recent uh, restriction of the Mass compared to Pope Benedict XVI's restriction, you know, has caused, uh, I think, some controversy in the church. I had a young parishioner ask me why we don't say Mass facing away from the people because the priest is supposed to lead the people to Christ. Uh, you know, I thought maybe the best thing was to find someone who was uh, a Catholic, lived before the Second Vatican Council, was ordained before the Second Vatican Council started, to tell the story of his own life and the effect that the Second Vatican Council had on it, and what it's like to be a priest and a Catholic before and after. Father Al Labenthal, my guest in Oro Valley Catholic, is from the Archdiocese of Cleveland. He was the rector for a number of years, a teacher uh, in the Archdiocesan Seminary. And so he is peculiarly situated to talk about studying in Latin versus not studying in Latin, celebrating in Latin versus not celebrating in Latin, facing away from the people, facing towards the people. And at least you hear one person uh, who lived through it all, to talk about what was so important about uh, the changes in the Second Vatican Council and how those reforms uh, helped to support his life and faith and ultimately his commitment to Christ and the priesthood. And so take a few minutes, go back to before the Second Vatican Council and listen to a lovely story from a very fine Catholic man and Catholic priest, Father Al Labenthal. Well, you got it right, John, Father L. Lobenthal. I'll sort of divide my comments here in my growing up period and then seminary priesthood period and seminary period, just sort of a, a way of giving a flow to this. So I have to give my age away. I'm born in 1934, and that means that uh, my early grade school started in 1940, so I'm in grade school from 40 to 48. So those years, my memory, you know, that's 70, between 70 and 80 years ago, so don't hold me to the exact details here, but I'll just share a few memories of uh, my participation at Mass. I do recall having real problems, as everybody did at the time, to understand what was going on. As little kids, it was just a, a mystery. And uh, your parents would do their best to try to explain what happened, and the sisters in school would try to explain what happened. But it was still all sort of mysterious. But anyway, everybody did it, and we did it. Now then, around the middle of the 40s, I became a, an altar server, a mass server. And I can still remember, night after night, sitting at the kitchen table with my mother, trying to memorize those Latin prayers <laughs> so that I could pass the t test in Latin in order to become a server. But we did, myself and my brother, a year younger than I am, and uh, we both became mass servers. And becoming mass servers, we became a little closer to what was going on because we were a little more part of it. But basically, what you had, in my estimation, was a priest that was praying and praying for us, and we were there in attendance. You know, the priest was a prayer, we were there in attendance. I won't go so far as to say he was, you know, like somebody said, well, he was the, uh, he was, he was the only one that was involved and everyone else was there as, part, as, as spectators. That's an overstatement. People were trying to participate in various ways. 
Uh, I can remember my own dear mother. Uh, she would go to church and and she would there she'd be praying for a while and pretty soon out would come her prayer book and she had her book of prayers and she would say that and she'd put them aside and pretty soon out would come her rosary <laughs> and uh, all of a sudden the bells would ring and the bells meant that the consecration was about to approach so everything was put down we all had to concentrate on the altar because we were taught that's when Jesus really came under the appearances of bread and wine and so it was a little easier to focus at that point but uh, I also remember as servers uh, because everything was in Latin and everything was so solemn that it was also a time for teenagers and pre-teenagers to get into trouble uh, you, you know, because if things are happening and you don't know what's going on, you tend to make your own uh, make your own fun. Is what happened. I can still remember four of us lined up at the altar, saying the prayers and the confidior. And in the confidior, someone like we say today, you had mea copa, mea copa, mea maxima copa, and then you had to bow towards the priest. Well, and I can still remember the guy kneeling next to me and going, Bromacelser, Bromacelser, Bromacelser. And of course, there I am trying to keep a straight face. I could have killed him. And we survived that one without the priest seeing us laugh. But there was stuff like that went on. Kids will be kids. Well, anyway, we, we survived it. I can also remember vividly uh, Holy Week. The Holy Saturday Liturgy was on Saturday morning before dawn in the back of the church at the baptistry. And it was twice as long as it is now. Can you imagine that? But everything was in Latin. I can still remember the priest. It was dark, lighting a, a, a candle, and we had to hold a candle over away from the baptistry. And he read all those readings, and we have six now, I think there are something like 11 of them, all those readings in Latin. You're going through all the Old Testament. Yeah, we, but you're reading the scripture in Latin. Yeah, all, yeah, and, and, and of course, he was going through it as fast as he could. I mean, I mean they could, the priest could really belt out that Latin, you know. And we were just, you know, getting tired of holding the candle as he went through all of Would that. Would people follow in the Roman Missal where they could read the English translation? Not, then, not at that point. That oh, really? was in the there 40s. The Rome, there they they didn't English have that at the 40s. They introduced that Missal in the 50s. Oh, wow. I, I late late 40s, that. early 50s, where they had it on the prayers of the English on one side and the Latin on the other. Well, when those were introduced, now I can see the people trying to follow along. And uh, I, I myself, when I wasn't serving, but what that, that became for a youngster, a game. Because the priest could say that Latin so fast, and you're desperately trying to get through the English. And of course, he would finish way before you were finished. I mean, they, they could go through what that. What language would they do the homily in? Well, okay, the, that was, they, the readings would have been in Latin. He had, he had to do the readings in Latin at the altar, but when he got to the uh, uh, pulpit, he could do the gospel in English and he could preach in English. Okay. So thank God for that. But, but... Uh, Why do they make a difference? The Old Testament would be in Latin, and New Testament you read Latin? the Gospel in English. What was the Well, I don't there? know, just because they, they didn't read both of them in English, I guess it was more of a focus on the Gospel. 
But even interestingly, the, the homily wasn't often on the gospel because the priest would be assigned topics. Like we'd Lent, they'd have sacraments, or Easter, we would have, uh, uh, we would have uh, the works of mercy, or uh, the rosary. They, they, would, they would preach on subjects, or God, or Christ. They say so that the, the best of them, if they could work the gospel into what they were preaching, but they would be assigned topics. Mm. So we really so there were catechetical style yeah, homilies, was, yeah. but not scripturally no, based no, necessarily. Necessarily, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I recall that very much. But I do recall that that uh, going through with a missile. Well, it was g good to have it, but I can I'll go back to my dear mother. <laughs> When they, I could see her going, and I could see all of a sudden she'd close it. She'd give up trying to follow because the priest could go so fast, and she'd go back to her prayers and her rosary. So there was an advancement there. Okay. I'm kind of curious. Given that experience as a kid, what made you want to be a Catholic priest? You know, that's a good, that's a good question. I was a server, and I, God works in strange ways. Even though these things were sort of discombobulated, a lot of it didn't make sense and so forth, uh, there was, uh, it was still a part of something sacred. It was still part of something that was important. Great reverence. And, there, and we were taught for reverence. Women wore veils. Right, even if we didn't, even if we had a hard time being reverent, at least we were taught to be that yeah. way. So I think the exposure was there. And, uh, and, and I think too, uh, uh, my relationship to uh, one of the associate pastors was a good one. Uh, he Do you used, remember your pastor's name? Well, I have uh, Father John Brucker. Oh, well, see, a long time later. Yeah, God I can remember his name. And Father Eugene Karsh, I can still yeah. remember the associate's name. Good German names. Did your family say the rosary in the home? We said the rosary at home. Yeah. But that, uh, and early on, but as we got older and got scattered, of course, mm -hmm. that, like every family, that became... Uh, we were expected to be there, but then football practice started yeah. entering and play practice. So did you go to like a secular high school or did you go to minor seminary? What did you do? I went to a Catholic grade school, public high school, a minor seminary. And you were brought up where? Northridgeville, Ohio. And is that near? The Diocese of Cleveland. So is that like a suburb of Cleveland? Yeah, or? It's, it's, it's like a suburb of Cleveland. Okay. Now, a good thing about that, see, now we, you can fast forward to... Um, 1952, I graduated from high school. I had a little break where I was into engineering at General Motors, but decided that the seminary was where I should be with some friends advising me, especially the father of a Jesuit priest, who told me one day when I said, you know, I'm, I'm doing, I'm, I'm, I've got this engineering scholarship, and if it doesn't work out, I'll go to the priesthood. And he stood up and banged the table and pointed at me and he says, young man, you've got it backwards. He says, you get to the seminary. That doesn't work out. You go to General Motors. I don't think people talk like that anymore. And I, Different and, and he, I Now when people ask me where my vocation came from, that's what figured this question. I said I was scared into the seminary. That's it. You know, it's, what's, what's interesting about you is that you were trained to say Mass in the, uh, in, the, in the Latin language. You were ordained before the Second Vatican Council started in 1960. Well, it started, the first session was 62. 62. And I was then, ordained in 61. And then afterwards, 
you taught in a seminary, and you ultimately became the rector of a seminary. So you're in a really good position to compare what training a priest was like before Vatican II and after. Okay. So what do you think are the big differences, or the, and what's similar? Well, what's, okay. what's similar is you still brought together your, your taught theology, philosophy, the, as much of the... Had all of that. Yeah. All of that. And we're taught the spiritual life, spirituality, and prayer, and so forth. The context would have been different in the pre-seminary, a pre-Vatican seminary, where we were in the diocesan priests, but our training was pretty much the same as priests in monasteries. The seminary was pretty much like a monastery. In my days in the seminary, we weren't allowed off the grounds except one afternoon a week, and then we could only go to public buildings uh, like libraries and so forth. If you went to a private uh, place or home or, or something else, you had to have permission. So it was very boxed in, and you were th there all the time. It was it, 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 not much exposure to the outside. No, you had hardly no exposure. So you know, I went there from eight years, from fifty-two to sixty-one. My summertime, thank God, I was home and I was working, and they did encourage you to get jobs. So it did keep me somewhat in touch. With the world. How much of your education in the pre-Vatican II seminary was in Latin? Okay, when it, when I started, when I went through theology, uh, I would say that three or some of the profs could teach a course in Latin, and they did, and you could understand it. Some had problems. What they would do is they do a summary, and then they would go in English, uh, and so. Uh, uh, it was mostly in Latin, but but more and more in English as I as 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 we got closer to sixty one. In the fifties, it started changing. But they wanted and, you to be proficient in Latin. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And so when I ordained in sixty one, um, then I was. Mm -hmm. uh, I have to tell a little story about being ordained. Okay. Remember, it's the pre-Vatican Church. We celebrated Mass with our back to the people. And uh, we had what was called these fiddleback vestments. Roman vestments. Yeah, the Roman vestments. Yeah. My dear mother had never said anything to me about how are things going in the seminary or I'd like you to do this or pay <clears> attention <throat> to that. She never said anything. The morning I'm ordained, she pulls me aside and she says, Alan, would you do me a favor? I said, yes, mother. When you go on the altar, please have your vestment on straight and your hair combed. <laughs> now, she's a good mother. Right? Only, oh, now, to this father. day, when I'm in the sacristy putting on my vestments, I have to smile because I say a prayer for my mother as I'm standing in front of that mirror making certain my vestments were on straight. But you see, when you had the fiddlebacks, if they got on crooked, it was terrible. And of course, there the priest is up in front of you and she had trouble praying anyway. You know, and now she's looking up there and it's, it's, distracting. it's distracting, you know, and so that's it. <laughs> so I guess one of the differences is pre-Vatican II, really a lot of instruction in Latin. After the Second Vatican Council, not so much. No, in fact, as the seminary started to change, like I said, a good deal of our training in the late 50s was, it went from when I first got in seminary, a lot of Latin to little Latin to almost no Latin. It was changing. Mm -hmm. So a lot of, most of my classes by the time I was ordained were in English. But you knew the Latin Mass well because, oh. yeah, and you know the English Mass well. You know, in comparing the Eucharistic prayers, for instance, 
Are there any major differences between the Eucharistic prayer from before Vatican II and the one we celebrate now? Well, of course, because before Vatican II, you just had the, the, the Tridentine Mass. And it's just one that Eucharistic one, one prayer. Eucharistic prayer. Now with the options of the many Eucharistic prayers, as you know, we have one, two, three, four, and then we have the yeah, reconciliation, reconciliation prayers, prayers we have, yeah, and we have prayers for children. We have those options, many options, that better fit the seasons. So that is a big difference. But I think uh, when I went to Rome, and you remember I, got, I was ordained in 61, in 63 I was sent back to Rome for further studies. I was only in that parish two years. I loved yeah. it. But in the parish, it was all still Latin. So were you in Rome when the council was going on? Yeah. yeah. I was there for second, third, and fourth session. Can you imagine studying theology in Rome at that time? I tell people those three years, the, the council, was like 30 years of education. Wow. Because we, you know, everything that was, all the documents that were coming out, we had to try to understand what they were about, what was going on, why, while we're also going through our studies for our doctorates. So and, get, getting back to that Eucharistic prayer, as that Tridentine rite, is that still a Eucharistic prayer we say translated in English, or what's most like it? Well, the, we have two, two prayers in Latin now. We have the Tridentine rite prayer. That's the Tridentine rite. That that's we, the Eucharistic the, prayer. But we also have it in Latin. We have the new liturgy, the, the new trans, the new liturgy, which is a, sh a shortened version in Latin, also. Okay, so if you have, if the priests, if they have permission to celebrate Mass in the Tridentine rite, which I know at St. John is oratory, they do. Or, or you have the permission to celebrate it in Latin, but it's a translation of the new, of the new uh, 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 canon. So the, that pre-Vatican II Eucharistic prayer was not simply translated into English no, and used. No, no, it was already, no. It, it was redone, redone rewritten. Re, yeah, redone. And what was, what was dropped out? Was there still an offertory? Was, you know, no, your, your basic points were, it's, it's still the same. If you have Eucharistic prayer number one, you have the basic outline of the, of the Tridentine Latin Mass. And you said it in both Latin and in, English. Latin and yeah, English. Yeah. And when, when uh, so by 63, 64, the, the, the decree on liturgy came out in 64. In 64. Sacrosanctum Concilium. Yes, it was at 63, 63. So I was over there in Rome when that was promulgated, the new document on the liturgy. And of course, that's what then really started all the changes. Changes had been happening, like I said, they had revised the Holy Week ceremonies, even in Latin. They had revived, made other revisions of prior to, second prior, second prior to the council. There were changes going on. So this wasn't a total surprise because they had been doing revisions, but the council, the big thing in the council is when the, the council gave the bishops' conferences the permission to celebrate the liturgy in the vernacular, and we turned the all around and faced the people. Those were the two <coughs> big things that affected But Rome people. still had to approve the, the, the Eucharistic prayer that was used. Yeah, they did. Yeah. Yeah, each bishop's conference uh, did their own translations. <coughs> but my biggest change, now I'll try to frame this for you. When we were, uh, when, when I was first, first ordained, uh, uh, people where there were a lot of priests, like at the seminary, 
or when we would go together uh, on retreat to celebrate Mass, the way we have to do it, you would be in a big room and there would be about 20 alders around the walls in this room. And you'd, you'd pair up with another priest. You would say Mass and the priest would serve. Then the server would put on the vestments and you'd serve. That's how we... Because there was no concelebration. There was no concelebration. Now, can you imagine being in a room with 30 people all celebrating Mass, trying to be quiet, but trying to be reverent, but, you know... But That's impossible. why in some of the older churches, you see altars and transepts. Many of them, yeah, the all side. these side yeah. altars. But I can, inevitably, you'd be in a room like that, and one of the priests would turn around and out loud say, Dominus Fobiscum, and half of us would answer, Echo Spirit 220, and then the whole place would break up and laugh for you to have three, and everybody, it all settled down, and we go back to, well, okay, now, with the, with, the implement, with the implementation of the council in 1964, the bishops concelebrated mass at the conclusion of the session, the third session in 64. One of my classmates had a mimeographed copy of that first Latin concelebration text. Ten of us, after that session, went down to the Holy Land for a pilgrimage, ten priests. We took the mimeograph uh, uh, copy with us, and we concelebrated Mass at all the uh, uh, Holy Land sites. Yeah. It was a total delight. Yeah, completely different from what it we has before. We stood around the altar and together said the prayer, and where other people were in these rooms all celebrating separate. It was like it was just a, it was just not very reverent. Just put it. But of course, the people in the Holy Land didn't know who we were. They never saw this before. But we had this is a new. We yeah. had the celebrants, and they knew we were just in from Rome. And so I had a young woman ask, "Why did they turn the?" priest around because she said that she'd learned that the reason in the pre-Vatican II church the priest uh, said mass with his back to the people is that he was supposed to be leading people to God and so then they turned it around and she wondered why because she wants a priest that leads her to God. Well okay because I think that basic idea of the priest leading her to God that that is that's that was her understanding of what the priest was doing. But even in the pre-Vatican church, you're celebrating mass, and it's a celebration in which the people are participants. And yes, the priest is leading the the celebration. But with the, with with the Vatican too, with the emphasis now on the fact that the mass is of the people, and the primary primary point was full active conscious participation and the priest is seen as one who is the leader he's still the leader but he's facilitating the prayer worship of, the, of the worship of the people by turning the altar around and facing them you're in eye contact with them you're in body contact with them you're sharing with them and they have a sense of who you are in leading them in their prayer. See, so, so, you know, one of the, the basic premises of the Second Vatican Council is you can read all the documents and the dogmatic constitutions, but one of the things that has come very strongly out of the Second Vatican Council 
is the universal call to holiness. And uh, one of the perennial problems of the church is clericalism. Would you reflect for our listeners on the interplay between the universal call to holiness and this, the problem of clericalism? The problem of clericalism, I think, developed over a period of time when the church more and more and more became identified with the clergy and religious. And you have you had like two churches. You got the clergy and the religious, meaning the priest, deacons, bishop, religious. Yeah. The church is the pope, the bishop, the priest. And, and, and the people yeah. are there, but they're there. I mean, yeah. the, the church gets focused on these people. Now what happens is, after a while, some of them start taking that seriously. And they begin to see themselves as something very special, or should have special treatment, or should be given special deference. That's it. See, it, it, it sort of, it, it grew historically. and Also they, played into our uh, sexual abuse problem. Oh yeah, sure. The idea of father, you know. Father, yeah, yeah. And why did. people didn't report, did why do they report to the police? Because clericalism. Yeah, yeah. And, then, and then why did the bishops not report it right away? Why did they work with it? Part of it was because they didn't know really how to handle it. But there were those who, who uh, tried to cover it up too, of course. Yeah, just handle it in-house. And, yeah, uh, handle it in-house and so forth. But the universal call to holiness, um, the idea that clergy and the nuns and the bishop were holier than other yeah, people. Yeah, that, this is in the target of, of the Second Vatican oh, Council. Definitely, yeah. Boy, you put your finger right on it. If you read through the decrees of the council, boy, that's a point that's made time and time again. The baptized. Yeah. The baptized. That's the it. church. That's, well, I like to point out how quickly St. Therese of Lisieux was canonized after her death. But mom and dad were canonized after the Second Vatican Council. One's a Carmelite sister, and the other her mom and dad. And that kind of captures well, sure. what the universal call to holiness is. And so, um, why do you think they changed the, the vestments from Roman-style vestments to uh, what I think we call them Gothic vestments, these much bigger uh, chasubles that priests wear? I'm not an expert on that. This is only right off the top of my head, and I think I might have heard it somewhere. Um, the, the vestments that we wear now are more in keeping with the more ancient vestures of the priests. The pictures that we have from archaeology okay, and art shows the, the, the flowing robes as being more or less the style. And I think uh, Vatican II, it wasn't so much of just with getting a priest can still wear the fiddleback vestments sure. celebrating mass. There are some priests that are comfortable wearing. Yeah, we have in our diocese or uh, vestments that look like what Saint Philip Neri used to wear, which yeah. is a little different. Yeah, a little different. Uh, there's, it's, it, you know, and we're not we, we're not told what to wear, but I think more of us realize the flowing vestments are more what the earlier priests were wearing. And I, like, personally, I'm just more comfortable in a... All you have to do is go back and look at medieval art, and that's the vestments that you yeah, see. Yeah, and it was sort it, of picked up. The, yeah, the Philip Neri and the fiddleback vestments, the Roman vestments, really start to more come into vogue in the Baroque... It's a Baroque and, period. Uh, yeah. Yep. And what I was told was that uh, the, the uh, focus was on 
very ornate ornamentation. That's why uh, we have some old vestments from France that are absolutely beautiful pieces of textile art. But what they said is, is that when you put that much gold thread on a piece of fabric, uh, that partly it was about weight. I don't know, I've never read it, worn anything that ornate. John, I know you, you've, you've, you can cut this in and out, but I have to tell you something. I'm now thinking back to the seminary. Yeah. I'm in the college seminary in Cincinnati. Still, everything is in Latin. And, and on certain Sundays, big feasts, we would have what was called seven cope vespers. This would be seven faculty priest members, all in these very ornate, big uh, copes. They're a cape. Yeah, like it yeah. went from, from shoulder to the floor. This particular Sunday, our dean of students, Father Angelo Caserta, he's with the Lord, praise God, we called him Angie, was the main, was the presider. So they walk, we walk into church and they line up this way, beside each other, to genuflect, to go up to the altar. When they genuflected, Caserta's head disappeared in his cope and when he came, stood up, his head reappeared. Popped back up. Popped back. The cope stayed on its own. He genuflected. He was so stiff. Yeah, so stiff. He genuflected in and out of it. I'm telling you, it took, can you imagine us trying to keep straight? Well, basically? you also get why once you take an idea as far as it can go, people want to go in a different yeah. direction. Can I ask, because you were the head of a seminary, you've been involved in vocations work most of your priesthood. What do you think our listeners, especially our families, could do to, increase, to uh, encourage vocations to the priesthood and the religious life in their family and in the community? Well, that's, boy, that's a loaded question. I'll, I'll be just It's an a, important I, one. I'll just hit a few things, John. I mean, obviously. Uh, most of all, that the family, that a child grows up in an atmosphere of love and respect for God that the most important thing in their lives is God and how they live their lives. It's, a, it, it's an atmosphere that, that is created by parents. It, it, it does involve some specific things like, sure, praying together at least prayers before and Prayer after meals. And if we can say the rosary, fine. If we can at least say a morning prayer or an evening prayer, fine. Uh, to, to create a climate like that, I think you create a climate where the Lord can speak to the youngsters through the example of the parents. And secondly, they do their best to be involved in the parish and, and, and work with the priest and religious, where the youngsters see that as a good relationship. Now, you know, some priests are better at that, some are not. The parents yeah. are better at that and some are not. But if everybody at least gives it a shot of doing their best, of, of that kind of enrollment, parish involvement. I remember my home parish. I remember those two priests. I remember our involvement at the special parish affairs. And uh, that, that had an impact on me. Prayer, of course, four vocations. I mean, we've got to, the Lord says pray. We gotta follow the, the Lord's mandate, pray. Oh yeah. And then support. If a child ever shows some indication Instead of saying, oh, I don't think so, oh, say, yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. I'm finding, sad to say, in some stories, as I've been in the seminary and as a rector and more and more in the modern era, and I understand why, 
people are not supporting, they're actually discour discouraging. They think of the family, not the community the families grow up in. It's really, it's short-term thinking. Yeah, yeah. And, and I understand that with the abuse issues and the kinds of things, but I, I would hope people that would get away from that and stay more at the personal relationship with the Lord, not let these other issues impact their relationship with their children. See? Yeah, they're more obstacles. Oh, yeah. But, you know, that's why the thing that they say is, some people run into burning buildings, some people run out. And I think calling people to vocation now is men and women who want to serve Christ, because uh, there's no point in complaining about the way the world is when you can do something. Sure. You know, when we were kids, uh, at every meal, Dad would lead us in the Sarah prayer for vocation. God who wills not the death of the sinner, but rather he be converted and live. That prayer started out. See, and you're you're backing up what I said. That's exactly it. it. Started in the home. Started at home. And, and the priests have to be respectable and they have to be kind. Um, we are the greatest. The priest is first and foremost. All the surveys show it. Yet, second is the family, and within the family, the mothers. Moms Very interesting. But if you think you've got to have your own grandkids, I just say, without a strong parish community to support marriages, uh, gosh, it's, it's, marriage is a tough one right now. I think you just have to pay attention. And it's because uh, people think that uh, the community doesn't matter as much, but it's fundamental to the health of, of families. So, any Father Laventhal. I, I have one point that I, you, you asked me and I forgot. You went. What was my experience in leading Mass in Latin yeah. and now my experience in leading oh, Mass point, in English at the altar? I can tell you, John, it was, it's night and day. It is, when you were up at that altar, you, you had in front of you were three prayer cards with the prayers in Latin. I've seen those. And, and that's all you were looking at. You, you heard, you turned around and said, Domus Viscum, you did get a response. Viscum Spiritu. You got a response. Yeah. But it was pretty much what you were doing up there. And when the alders turned around and they moved him down, and I'm standing there now, and I say, the Lord be with you, and they're answering me, and we're praying together. Much more call and oh, response. Oh, it's night and day. Yeah. It is night and day, John. Yeah. I just felt, I just thanked the good Lord that I was ordained when I was to see that change, and now to have celebrated Mass all these 50-plus years this way. I think people miss the culture of reverence and full seminaries and the idea of the church being this healthy, um, supportive environment. And that's what we have to build in our, in our church today. So, uh, Father, we're at the end of our time for Oro Valley Catholic, but I want to thank you for being a guest. And why don't we pray uh, to our Blessed Lady to help us uh, to increase vocations to the church. And so let's pray together. Hail, Hail Mary, Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Uh, God bless you, Oro Valley, and we'll see you again, and parts of Miranda, and we'll see you next week. <laughs> Thank you, John.